Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Word on the Hill. You know, it's not necessarily morning for them when they're listening to it. Oh, that's a good point. But it's morning for us. We don't usually record this podcast. Here, let's try this again. Greetings and salutations, everybody. Everybody. In TV land, it is a beautiful, balmy 52 degrees. Dude, it's uh, it's like it's like one of those perfect fall days. Oh there. man, it's the best. It's a little bit wet and a little bit rainy and a little bit, like you know, and just like glowing. It's it's like glowing. It's like you. My favorite moment is when it's like slightly overcast and the mm. trees are so vibrant that they they look like they have the soul glow. Oh, well, good pull. Yeah, dude. Well, um, this uh, this week is the twenty eighth Sunday in ordinary time. It sure is. We are. Every week, I want to say we're closing in on the end of ordinary time, but we're really not. We still have like a month and a half. <laughs> I'm just looking at the sea of green yeah, well, on yeah, the liturgical calendar. We had a while. Yeah, I mean, it's just always funny because th- that's the whole nature of the ordinary time is the, the anticipation of it all ending. It's all going down, ladies and gentlemen. The ship is going to crash. Jeez. Happy thoughts for your <laughs> Wednesday morning. <laughs> Team Handy. Team Handy, what's yeah, that? Yeah, Jack Handy, dude. Oh, Team, deep, yeah, deep, deep, deep Thoughts, thoughts by yeah. Jack Handy. Yeah, I love Deep Thoughts. Dude, the, the two absurdest comedians of the universe that I appreciate most. Of the universe. Are, are Jack Handy okay. and Glenn Baxter. Who's Glenn Baxter? Glenn Baxter was a cartoonist for the New Yorker, and he just <laughs> puts out the weirdest stuff ever. It's just so weird. Like, he took Brunhilde in his arms and gently squeezed her goatee. You're a strange man. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all right. I love you. It is the, yeah, you just said, the 28th Sunday of Ordinary Time. Our first reading this week is coming from the book of Second Kings. So we're talking about Elisha today. Not Elijah, but Elisha. D- dude, Elisha. that's all. D- Elisha. It is, uh, we're reading from Second Kings, <laughs> chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. And then our song <sighs> comes from uh, Balmy 98. <laughs> Oh my Verses one through four in no particular order. That's not true. That's not true at all. There's completely an order. Uh, I know. It's one, then two, and three, and then three and four. I'm just saying. No particular order. I'm just come on. Say, come can't. on. When have they ever mixed up? From they've never mixed that up ever. Uh, sometimes it gets weird. I mean, and they, sometimes they jump they, around. They chop it up. Jump. Jump around. <laughs> chop it up. Chop it up. <laughs> Our second reading is coming from Second Timothy. Have you been smoking a pipe into this microphone? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's my, a pleasant smell. But no, my the, goodness, my my pipe tobacco box is open. Is right it now. emanating from my microphone? Yeah, it is. All right, Second Timothy chapter <laughs> two verses eight through thirteen. This is gonna be a hard podcast to get through. <laughs> <laughs> and then our gospel is coming from Luke. Use the false Luke. Mm. Luke seventeen eleven through nineteen. A whole sea of lepers are running at us, <laughs> dude. This is not really a sea of lepers. A sea of lepers. Maybe a gaggle of lepers. Dude, you've been watching some sort of ga- gaggle of lepers. You've been watching some sort of TV show, man. I haven't. Not even a little bit. <laughs> I uh, yeah, I don't watch that much. TV. Well, if you're wondering today what the common theme of all the readings is, is it's leprosy. Lepers. No, it's not. It's, it's outsiders. Whoa. Whoa. Ah, well, I'm excited because I've got an idea about the gospel today that I'm going to share with you about the outsidership. This is one of those. So, okay, I got to be honest with you guys. These are beautiful readings and there's a lot going on here. 
But I worked hard to try to find, like, what's the weird, obscure, really profound insight here? And I just couldn't find it. Yeah. Like, they're pretty straightforward. This is one of those <laughs> days that you don't really need the podcast. I mean, you do need you need you the podcast. Need but you know what podcast. I mean? Like, you can read these at face value and, and, okay, I get it. Like, there's a lot of our readings that you're like, you need to understand the context to see what on earth is Let, going on. Like, increase our faith from the other week. It yeah, was, exactly. It, it's like, what are we talking about? Oh, my gosh, yeah. it was so wonderful. That, that insight, like, gave me just a launching pad into the next universe. It was awesome. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Well, um, so we yeah, start. Anyway, let's let's said, start in now that I've Kings. Now that I've discounted our whole podcast. Well, no, the, this is the thing. Is that where I was looking for it? That don't underestimate the Holy Spirit, brah. I'm not, brah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, all right. So, so Second, Second Kings. Kings. So, <laughs> <laughs> this is so okay. Elijah and Elisha. We need to say a word about them. Okay. Elijah and Elisha. Elijah. What? Elijah is the one who gets more ink, so to speak. Well, he does that. Elisha's story is pretty long too. Well, no, He's the, just remembered better. Yeah. Because, Most of us have heard of Elijah. Yes. And then, I'm just waiting to interrupt you again. No. So we've all okay. heard of Elijah. And Elijah, in in fairness, is it's 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 weird because it, in a certain sense, Elisha, who comes after Elijah, is a bigger deal. Is a bigger deal. But we know that Elijah is the greater. Because he shows up at the Transfiguration, it, representing the prophets. Well, and it's but, it's kind of like the um, older brother younger brother syndrome. Oh, because like the older brother, he has this so much work. He's got to carve a path, and then the younger brother, he kind of just follows in the path, but does it like twice as big. Yeah, it is a funny thing, isn't it? Because Elisha is going to do twice as many miracles as Elijah does. Absolutely. And even the miracles that he does, they're like double miracles. So Elijah raises one person from the dead. Elisha raises two people from the dead. Elijah cares for a woman, a widow and her son, a widow. And then Elisha cares for a, cares for a widow and her son. So it, there's all these things that are just compounded. And if you think back to the story, Elijah was a prophet who was sent to prophesy against evil kings in the northern empire who were turning far from God. And he thought that he was basically alone and that no, there were none faithful left. He was this remnant. And his job was to try to call the people back to faith. And he does it to some degree and he's disheartened. And we get this great tradition of the Carmelite tradition. These spiritualities actually come out of the person of Elijah and his struggles with this and trying to reconcile why does God allow so much evil to persist? And God rewards his faithfulness by giving him a disciple and a close friend and a confidant and someone to walk with him and, and, um, and minister with him. And then at the end of his life, God calls Elijah up to heaven, this chariot of fire that ascends into heaven, and he transfers dun, dun, his authority. Dun, 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 dun. Chariots of fire, and we got it. And he tra- I'm sorry, that was snide. <laughs> but he transfers his authority as a prophet to Elisha, this disciple of his. And he has this great moment at the Jordan River where Elisha asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And at the Jordan River, Elijah gives Elisha a double portion of the spirit. Then he goes up into heaven. And then there, well, Elisha goes on to perform all these miracles, like raising people from the dead and multiplying loaves and curing lepers and sick people. Well, which it's, is, a, it's, a, in, it's an if then, it's if this, then that. It's an if uh, okay, how so? Um, if I'm actually taken up, then you will receive a double portion of the spirit. If I'm not, then you won't get all the extra goodness. So so it, it's funny because that's actually the... We see already within the church, this is actually a really beautiful example of what the church in Jesus Christ is. Okay. So Jesus Christ, very important. 
<laughs> I'd say. <laughs> I'd say so. Yeah, very important. I mean, kind of takes the spotlight. Let's just be honest. It is called Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> it's not called John the Baptistianity. I know, I, I but I think it's yeah, beautiful anyway. because then what? What is Jesus? If Jesus is taken up, yeah. then there's this there's this double portion of the Spirit, and Why? you will see all these amazing things happen. So, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will remain a great grain of wheat, right? But yeah, the if then, yes. Yeah, but yeah, then, that's but, a, that's interesting insight. So then, so then, so then we see that that's actually and that. that the whole pattern is actually played out in the church. And I think it's actually really cool because I think th- that's like what's been making me, having me make sense of the, why we do confirmation. Okay. Because at the, um, I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> Bless you. I'm going to keep that on the podcast. <laughs> Excuse me. Because it was an absurd sounding sneeze. <laughs> <I'll bloop. laughs> <laughs> what, what, what okay. I, confirmation yeah what i what i see is you get a portion of the spirit you get a you get the full i mean it's not like you can give the spirit in half measure you only give the spirit in full measures but you can give double measures of the spirit you know what i'm saying so at the bab- at baptism you receive the holy spirit you become a temple of the holy spirit in a very real way but then at the confirmation it, it's like this double portion of the spirit is like, that the right like, way to talk about confirmation or are we headed down the I don't know. I could be. Road. I could be a total I heretic. Well, I mean, it, it's it's how I've been conceiving of it. Because so. I've always understood, the way I've always understood it is that we we get the fullness of the Holy Spirit at baptism. Totally. But right. there is a, a part or aspects of the Holy Spirit's power that lie dormant within us until confirmation activates them. So it's not specific as I've always understood. It's not that we're getting something new in confirmation. It's that something is the, that is already there is now being activated in our lives in a new way. So I mean, and which and, is it's not different than what you're saying, really. Now, that yeah, I, I like I like it out. I like the nuance. I mean, but it is a double portion of the spirit. Yeah, no, that's that's actually really cool, and not coincidentally. This transfer of authority, this double portion, happens at the Jordan River, and it, it, it is this parallel story of John the Baptist, who is called the new Elijah, giving baptism to Jesus when he receives the Spirit itself, remember, descending upon him as baptism, and from there he goes on to raise people from the dead and multiply loaves of bread and cure and heal people and all these things. So you're seeing that there's this um, foreshadowing of John the Baptist and Jesus in the story of Elijah and Elisha. So there are all these layers. And of course, this giving of the Spirit, this is where we get baptism and confirmation. It all comes at this root, at this scene in the Jordan River, which is prefigured by Elijah and Elisha, which is really neat. Which So from there... So, so now let's go now down back to the, the river and pray. Ah, uh, studying about that good old way. <laughs> so John the... Uh, so not John the Baptist. Elisha, after seeing Elijah take uh, taken up in the chariot... He goes on to perform. There's a series of miracle stories. It's from around chapter four through seven or so. And he does all these miracles that mirror what Elijah did, except they're greater. A lot of it is undoing actually curses that Elijah put on people for their hardness of hearts. And he's bringing people back to life in a certain sense. And he comes across this guy named Naaman, who is a Gentile. He's non-Jewish. He's in the court uh, of the king of Aram, I believe, if I'm not mistaken on that. Oh, I'm having a a hard time naming it. (laughs) <laughs> nice nice but he's an outsider and that that's kind of the point and it would have been strange to think of a hebrew even a hebrew in the northern kingdom to primarily be doing this ministry of healing to a non-hebrew to a gentile to an outsider which is why later on when this story comes up it comes up a couple times in the gospels and it really ticks people off at jesus well, why are you bringing up that story 
Like, why are you talking about the outsiders that he healed? Because wasn't it Jesus that one? Is it in Luke where he's like, it was only to Naaman the prophet or to Naaman that um, that Elisha went and did these things? Absolutely, because of the hardness of heart of his own people. Well, this. So I'm going to actually just mention this now because I think it's actually really important. Is that um, healing? When we actually look at um, how the holy people of God. Um, uh, they actually need a temple regime to be able to be re-included within the holy people of God. So yes. if so, if you have something, where then then there's a certain sense of the significance that healing is actually opening the door to familial relationships. No, that's a, I think that's a beautiful insight. <laughs> do you? <laughs> no, I do. I do because it's 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 kind of teaching us what. According to to God, what what who the family is, and that's really what the readings are kind of drawing us toward is yeah, who I mean, you, is you, our who you, is my neighbor, right? This who, question that Jesus is posed with, and and like who is allowed to participate in the civic reality? Can you be in the city? Can you like, like I mean, which we're is talking different about, in the case of Naaman. I find this interesting. So the, the le- interesting. he's got leprosy. Okay, these lepers are going to show up in the gospel in that very particular way that you're referring to. Yeah, it appears to me, and I'm not 100 percent sure. It appears to me that it's different in other parts of the world because Naaman appears to still be on the court of the king. He still actually retains his job even though he's got leprosy. He's not a total cast out. I don't think. He's an outsider to the people of God. He's an outsider to Israel, and that's right. what, what, and that's what Elisha is doing. And he takes him down, of course, to the Jordan River, which is the place of new life, the place where the Spirit is given, right? right. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The place. This is the place where Joshua leads the people from slavery of Egypt into the Promised Land. Yeah, it but, is the place of new beginnings. But, but it's also notice notice that they did not go down into the water, though. Who the water that? stopped when they came in. Yeah. You mean Israel, when Israel yeah. crosses into the promised land. Yeah, no, that's true. Why? What's the significance there? That that's fascinating. But what do you I think that the significance is, is that is that um is that the healing of Israel actually is put off until we actually encou- encounter Jesus Christ. Oh my. Yeah. Well, what about Naaman here? With Naaman, th- well, that's exactly it. It's only sent to, as a symbol, as a recognition, saying that that you will be healed of this sin and that it, a worldwide blessing is going to come, but it actually has to come to full fruition. It's almost like that, that prophetic gesture to say, like, hope, but they don't see hope in it. They hmm. see judgment. Yeah. Which is really tough because it, it, that, huh. th- that's precisely what... what um, What's actually going to take place is that judgment and healing will come together. Interesting. I don't know. Now, where I'm, where I'm, is the judgment in this story? Because I'm just seeing healing for Naaman. Yeah, it, it's well, it's no. an outsider. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No. I. I mean, I, that's why they got mad in Luke, is they said uh, yeah, that God okay. only healed an outsider yeah, yeah, when yeah, okay. the drought was going. Well, but but that's not I, your point. Actually, still. Okay, so let's just take apart the story real, I, real quick. I, I could have so, a good point, but the wrong do, reason. No, no, no. I think I think you're missing something about Naaman because I think there's a universality to what you're saying. It's <sighs> I not limited to, to Israel. It. You're right. Stop it. So he goes down. He's plunged into the Jordan seven times. I mean, think think about the imagery of baptism. He's plunged into the water, and he's basically brought back to life afterwards. I mean, the prefigurement of baptism is amazing. He's not plunged three times. He's plunged seven times. Which is a covenant reality. So, in a certain sense, he's being brought into covenant in with Elisha in fullness, a very real way, in, in, in fullness. Because that's totality. really what seven means. Seven represents, yeah, totality or or 
completion, right? right? So he's cast down the water, and then his his flesh becomes like a little child. His leprosy is gone. This pre- defiguring, defiguring, yeah, whatever. This disease that defigures him. He's cleansed of his leprosy, and then he makes what is one of the most profound statements of faith in the whole Bible. Right. And he says before Elijah, Elisha, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. So he tries to give a holocaust, this gift, this sacrifice to Elisha, which in that part of the world, in these cultures, in other pagan societies, the priests would regularly, readily and regularly accept sacrifices or payment or something for their time or for their work. Elisha makes a very strict point not to accept any of that because what he's trying to say without saying it explicitly is that the glory go well no he does say it i won't take it because the glory goes to god alone it's not me that did this yes i cast you down to the water seven times but god healed you just like i mean there, there's so many there is so resonant with with how catholics view the sacramental life i mean when i go to confession to you it's really not you it's Christ forgiving my sins through you. Right. You on your own have no power. You have no right. authority to do this. It's Christ's power within you that's actually doing this. Right. You by yourself can't make that bread and wine into Jesus. It's God's power. Right. So we shouldn't, you know, after Mass, people shouldn't be like, oh my gosh, Father, you did an amazing job of consecrating the Eucharist today. That was unbelievable. Well done. Bringing Jesus down to earth. <laughs> Bringing God to earth and actually letting us partake in him. Mm. Nice job. Yeah. I mean, if somebody said that to you, you wouldn't be like, thank you. I, I did my best. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's no, like, no, no, no. God did this. I am an it. unworthy servant. Which is what Alicia is trying to show. Um, what Naaman doesn't understand, which I find this kind of interesting. Uh, so Elisha replies, as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I won't take it. And despite Naaman's urging, he still refused. So Naaman said, if you'll not accept it, please let me, your servant, have two mule loads of earth, for I will no longer offer holocaust or sacrifice to any other God except the Lord. What the heck is going on there? Well, he doesn't understand that you... So. The understanding in the ancient world, and this is a polytheistic world where they believe in lots of gods. So I don't know if Naaman is understanding that this God is... No, he does say there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Right. But he's not fully there yet because the understanding in the ancient world is you can only offer sacrifice to a God in the home country of that God. So you can only offer sacrifices to the Egyptian gods in Egypt. You could only offer sacrifices to the Canaanite gods in Canaan. Uh. So his understanding is... Well, I can only offer sacrifice to this God of Israel in Israel. I don't live in Israel. Right. So let me take some loads of dirt from Israel and then home right. so that I can offer sacrifice on Israelite dirt. And what is Elisha's trying to show is that no, this God transcends borders. This God transcends geographic lines mm. or civic realities. Like and this is where your point about the civic reality of his, that is Israel is so important is that God is not limited by a civic reality. He's mm. not bound by national borders. He's not bound by anything. He can work even in the likes of Naaman. He doesn't need two mule loads of dirt to go and offer a sacrifice to God because God is universal. This is that vision from Ezekiel when they're heading off into exile and Ezekiel sees a vision of God with four burning wheels showing that we have a God who's mobile. God's going to come with us. Even if we're hauled off into slavery and exile in Babylon, mm. God's coming along because God isn't limited to a piece of land. 
God is everywhere and in all and for all and with us all. Gosh, and it makes sense of Isaiah. It says, uh, you know, uh, fill in the valleys, bring low the mountains, make the highway straight for the Lord. Yeah. Because it's actually, it's a highway. Like On the road again. Mm-hmm. Just can't wait to get our God on the road, road again. again. Well, I, I actually think it's beautiful. The new Jer- I just had this vision of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Should I tell the, the bishop? I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and, and it was Strong not again. just a singular city. It was the entire ecclesium actually taking over the face of the planet, that, that the new mm. Jerusalem is not limited. That's what's so beautiful is like the temple of God is not merely one location, the temple of God. And this is what's yeah. so crazy is it's not only the temple of God present within um, the Eucharistic presence, but in all of those who have been baptized. Yeah, which is why I mean I'm I'm translate so translate this into the Catholic reality because, you know, I you've heard people a million times be like, well, you know, nature is my I don't need to go to a church, a building in a specific place on Sunday, because you know the the Vale is my Vale Ski Resort is my cathedral or you know what you we've heard we've heard all these things. No, but, I've never heard that ever. Come on now. I know I hear it all the time, but. It, it's a different reality because we we do believe God is physically present in those churches in those places, but we believe that that's possible because you can build a Catholic church anywhere on Earth, and we can have the presence of God really dwelling everywhere from Antarctica to Africa to Russia to Colorado. That it's not that it, it become it's not that God just becomes a sort of amorphous blob reality where He's not really anywhere. It's that He can make Himself manifest physically, tangibly present anywhere and right. he does which is better than right. saying oh god god is everywhere that is absolutely true right but that's not enough for god he wants to make himself physically tangibly present in mm. every corner of the earth so we can access him not just with our minds and our hearts but with our bodies right and that's really cool it's cool and and it goes beyond um like pantheism which just is which yeah, is yeah, actually yeah. milk toast which well, that's spelled a weird... with a Q. Milk. <laughs> that's how it's spelled. Milk toast. Yeah. With a, it's spelled with a Q. I don't know. There that... was a character in Bloom County who spelled it with a Q. Do you remember him, the cockroach? Oh yeah. Take that. Anyway, oh. keep going. Keep going. Um, which is is to say that no, God is actually specifically present in very particular ways with meaning, not yeah. just. And God is sovereign, so He can manifest His will anywhere He wants, but yeah. He Himself and His presence is 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 very specific. Well, this is getting well, very abstract. I know. No, but let's bring it back home. Okay. No, it's. I don't think it is. It's not abstract at all because it's coming down to the fact that God is present for Naaman who's in a foreign land, who doesn't seem like he's inside the family or the walls of what is considered Israel. How on earth can God have access, or can Naaman rather, have access to a God who is supposed to be the God of Israel? And what the New Testament is constantly looking back upon when the church is debating, okay, how do we let in Gentiles and outsiders and foreigners and sinners and all these things? The, Old Te- the New Testament looks back and says, look, there's constant times throughout the Old Testament where God is doing that. Right. He goes to somebody like Naaman. He goes to Rahab the prostitute. He goes to Ruth, who's out in Moab. He goes to all of the, God, this is what God does. Right. So why should it surprise us now in the New Testament that God is actively setting out to make his church a universal reality? Mm. And the answer to all this is Psalm 98. Dude, which says I the was Lord about has to do re- the same thing. Well, it is, but that's where it fits. Yeah. Because even in the Old Testament, the Lord has revealed to the nations his saving power. He showed it to Egypt 
in the plagues and the mighty works. He showed it to the people in Canaan when they heard about what he did in Egypt. He showed it to the Assyrians and Cyrus the Persian, who he used as his instrument. This Again, the fact that this is the single greatest debate in the early church, the answer comes in the Old Testament. Look, God right. has been doing this to the nations, to the outsiders, to the foreigners from the beginning. Look at Naaman. Look at the Egyptians. Yeah, which is, which is it says, um, he has gotten him victory, and the Lord has made known his victory to, in the sight of the nations. Yeah. He has remembered his mercy and faithfulness to the house of Israel, and all the ends of the earth have seen the victory of our God. Yes. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into a joyous song and sing praise. Yeah. Because what, what we're seeing is that, that this has been the plan always, and that, that it's, it's what's hard is that when we forget what the outward plan is. Yes. Rather than and, and but then when you remember it, the the joy of what's actually taking place, we can rejoice in Naaman, not rather than harden our hearts to Naaman, and yes. and as as a symbol of all of those who need to actually come into the fold. But there's a twist, and I think the twist comes mm-hmm. starting in the second reading, and the second reading interprets the the gospel reading. So look at what Saint Paul. We're still in Second Timothy. This is Paul's sort of last words before his death to his best friend, Timothy, who's now the Bishop of Ephesus. Timothea. He says, beloved, remember Jesus Christ, right? I don't even know if I want to say that much about 2 Timothy except to read it and then to apply it to the gospel. Sounds good to me, brah. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David. Such is my gospel for which I am suffering. Remember, Paul's in prison. He knows his death is imminent as he's writing this letter to Timothy. And he's like, all right, I'm working back through. What have we been doing here? What is this project of spreading the gospels and and gospel? Um, I'm suffering even to the point of chains. I'm like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. It's not limited. It's not tied, right? Just what we were saying. Therefore, I bear with everything for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Who are those who are chosen? Well, they're people like Naaman, as well as people like St. Paul, as Mm. well as people like Peter, as well as people like Mary Magdalene, as well as people like Rahab from the book of Joshua, who was a prostitute. These are the chosen that he's referring to that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, together with the eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we persevere, we shall also reign with him. But if we deny him, he will deny us. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he can't deny himself. What Paul is getting at is that there's no glory without the cross. There's no new life without a death first. Mm. Naaman, in a very real prefiguring way, Mm. enters into this sevenfold symbol of death in the Jordan River. It's a prefiguring, you know, in baptism, we believe we literally die to our old selves. We're drowned in the waters of baptism and we raise again to new life. Naaman, in order to access this God, needs to die to something. Right. His physical leprosy, which is holding him back physically, but also his ties to his other gods and idols and whatever else is holding him back, those things are washed clean as he dies to them in the Jordan River. You can't access to the glory unless there's a little bit of death. The Egyptians, when, when the people went out of Egypt... Uh, and the Egyptian people came along with Israel when they recognized, whoa, these people's God has got it going on. Like he knows what's up. There had to be a rejection of another way of life. 
right. to follow the way of God, the one true God, you've got to reject something. Right. I, I was I was leading a Bible study on Ruth last week. Ruth, this Ruth, beautiful figure. Baby Ruth? She, yes. But she rejects the gods of her ancestors and says, I'm going to follow your God, Naomi. I want your God to be my God. Where you go, I will go. I'm going to give up everything. I'm going to give up my future and a life with some Moabite guy and having children. I'm going to go with you because I believe that your God is God. There always has to be a death to something, right? And that's that's kind of the point. And that, I think, is the lead-in to the gospel, where you have this great story of 10 lepers. So Jesus is going along. We're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, right? The, uh, the climax of the whole gospel is drawing near. We're getting close to Jerusalem. And it says, as Jesus continued his journey to Jerusalem, Luke puts this in because he assumes that you know where the story is going. Oh, what's going to happen in Jerusalem, I wonder? Well, we know exactly what's going to happen in Jerusalem. It's the passion. Right. So as he's going there, he traveled through Samaria and Galilee, the outlier areas, the places where the outsiders lived, frankly. Hmm. There's some Jews up there. There's a couple synagogues, but it's mainly people who are cast off from the family, the Samaritans. They're the remnants of the 10 tribes who abandoned Israel and went and found their own founded their own kingdom and their own temples and their own priesthood and everybody that Elijah and Elisha were speaking against. That's who the Samaritans are. They're the leftovers of those people. The Jews hate him and they hate the Jews. And so he's there and he entered in a village and there were 10 lepers who met him. And they stood at a distance from him and they raised their voices saying, Master Jesus, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he, and when he saw him, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. Um... And they were going, and as they were going, they were cleansed. Now, the thing we have to know about leprosy, I want to say a word about leprosy, at least the way the Jewish people perceive it. There's a number of things that are prescribed in the book of Leviticus that will make you ritually unclean. Okay. So, and, and this is where people give the Bible and Judeo-Christianity kind of a hard time. There's all these things that render you unclean, like you're unclean if you have leprosy, you're unclean. If you touch a dead body, you know, if, you, if I, if I kill a mouse in my house, I'm I'm unclean because I've touched your house. <laughs> mouse in my house. If there's certain uh, bodily fluids, if they're discharged, and many of them which are out of our control, that actually makes you unclean. Right. If a woman gives birth and there is, you know, discharge, it's unclean. And people are like, "Well, the Bible hates women, and the Bible hates, you know, all sorts of things." And this is crazy, and what absurdity! Yeah, if you're for re- someone, released from the military with an honorable discharge, I mean, sometimes you, I'm just just kidding. Unreal. But here's the thing. Biblical uncleanness has nothing to do with morality. Biblical uncleanness has nothing to do with a person's moral state. Because, again, there's certain fluids that discharge from the body, you know, whether we like it or not, to make you unclean. I, I, I can't, I'm just, I can't, just, just go with I know, it, man. I know. It's just hard to hear just you keep saying that. I'll stop saying it. <laughs> It has nothing to do with a person's morality. It makes you ritually unclean, which means if these things happen, you can no longer access the temple until a period passes and you are rendered clean by the priests and offered sacrifice and everything else. Absolutely. What does that mean, though? And how can you say that has nothing to do with morality? What it's doing is, and why this strange rules and laws exist, is that anything that has a semblance of death in it is not permitted in God's temple. If you've touched a dead body, if you've, you know, shot a deer, if you've, you know, if you've bled, if you've discharged, you know, if some you sort pierced, of bodily... If you pierced the space suit, as they would say. <laughs> sure. Let's go with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because any diminution of life is a participation, a participation of death. Right. And if you give birth to a child, there are things that come out of you that render you unclean. <laughs> come on. I know. I'm just but, laughing. It just keeps going there. But the reason for this... 
is that the understanding was, look, the temple is meant to represent the Garden of Eden. It's meant to be a representation of what creation was supposed to be before original sin came in and began to tear apart reality. Right. And before original sin, there was no death. So things that participate in death, whether conscious or unconscious or purposeful or unpurposeful, they have no place in the temple. To remind us, essentially, that the world is not as it should be, and there will come a time when death is no more. It's a painful built-in reminder to everyone's everyday life that the world is not as it should be, and the world will one day change when death will be no more. And so what that means is that these lepers, who constantly have things oozing out of them and pus and stuff, they are cut off from the ritual worship life of the faith. They can't go to the temple. They can't participate in worship. They can't be a part of the community. They are cut off. They are dead to the community. They're dead to the community. Well, yeah, and and, the, and this is where what we see happening is in the healing of Jesus Christ, he's actually restoring the community. And he, it, like, l- l- this is actually... Well, he's restoring them to community. Right. Yeah. I mean, but but that's actually, like, uh, um, that's where we see this. Uh, has no one, um, we're not ten cleansed, we're the nine. No one... Uh, w- uh, this is funny. So uh, you fast is, forward a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, I'm fast forwarding um, because what's happening is that uh, in the story that we're seeing right now in Luke is that uh, that 10 were healed and Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priests, yeah. which is which is this whole thing saying, acknowledge that you're going to be restored to the community in, in like saying like, okay, which is interesting because that would have been super evangelical to the priesthood in the temple area. But... What's what's super interesting is that one comes back and gives glory to Jesus, which is actually the true priesthood, which is interesting because you, so you're having this kind of weird thing happening. We're not nine cleansed where the others give praise to God and your faith makes you well. Well, absolutely. Well, what Jesus is doing is subverting the entire temple system. Right. Because, I mean, they couldn't to <laughs> it's kind of a tricky boat to be in. Because the only way that they can be rendered clean is for a priest to offer sacrifice to them, for them, on their behalf. But they actually can't go near any of the priests because they're constantly oozing life. Stuff. So there's no way for them to actually be... The only person who has the authority and the power to get them back into the community is the one person that they can ever actually have contact with. Mm-hmm. So then this, they're stuck. But as the system goes, it's only the offered sacrifices of the priests that can actually make them well. And they can't be made well because they're in the constant state of blood coming out of them. So what does Jesus do? He says, he basically says, look, I am the new temple. I am the new priesthood. I have rendered you clean. Go show the priest. He's not saying go have the priest welcome you back into the community. It's basically like a na 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 He's like, show them that you, the whole system has been subverted. Right. I have made you whole. Show the priests. They will not be able to explain it. They will not be able to give an answer for what has happened. But at the same time, they will be forced to welcome you back in because you no longer have the condition that rendered you as outsiders any longer. You have been brought back to life. So basically show the priests that you have resurrected. Right. And, you know, I mean, it should be clear as a bell that the priests didn't do this. The priests did nothing. And who knows if the priests were even willing, maybe they had hardness of hearts, to let them back into the community. But the point is, Jesus has brought the dead back to life, and only one guy has the, has the 
courtesy or the guts or whatever it is to recognize that that has actually taken place. Which is which is interesting because what we do is we fast forward and we say, gosh, we have been invited through baptism into the prophetic, priestly, and kingly roles yeah. uh, uh, in Jesus Christ, which means that to actually be able to draw people back in, we participate in the sacrifice of Christ and offer ours along with him, our measly little piddly ones. Right. We actually join to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's actually what makes that was that's what makes um so much effective in drawing back the nations. That's why they say right. the seed of the martyrs is uh, the, the, the blood the of the martyrs is the seed the, of the church. Tertullian. Yeah, which, which yeah. is interesting because what it says is is those who sacrifice along with Jesus Christ are effective in drawing back in the nations. Yes, and that that is that's one of those things that like. So what do we offer in sacrifice? I mean, like, like that's why. What are fasts? What are these these uh, gestures of prayer? What are these moments to where we actually a humble and contrite heart? Oh God, you will not spurn. Why do we make ourselves humble? Why do we actually repent of our sins? It's so that we can actually take something of ourselves and then offer it along with the Lord. And because, that's so profoundly effective. Because we have to die to something. Right. In order for this glory to be activated. Absolutely. The glory is given to us. It's a free gift. Grace is a free gift. It's given to us. But we have to cooperate with it. And to cooperate, it usually entails dying to ourselves. And we have this crazy notion. Like Naaman. That, that we can actually apply that to others, though that we can suffer on behalf of the Naamans of the world, that we can offer ourselves on behalf of whoever. Right. And the outsider. And so that the, that outsider can um, have an expression of will right. and intellect to right. know and to love and to right. be able right. to to I, I do it. We can't do everything on their behalf. But no, we can, of course not. But we can make that invitation. And that, that is a powerful thing. Invitation. Now, invitation, not, not only physically by speaking words and saying, come on down and the water's good. Right. But say, but invitation and in, in, in creating a spiritual space for them to be able to do that. Right. It's interesting to me, and maybe this is the final note, that the Jordan River, did you know this? I, I think I knew this, but I was just reminded recently. The Jordan River Valley is, by elevation, the lowest place on the face of the earth. There is nowhere lower on the face of the earth than the Jordan River Valley. Wow. Where Naaman goes to be cast into death, where Jesus goes to die to himself, to pledge himself to the cross, where we all, in a very spiritually real sense, go to die to our old selves to be risen again. It's mm. the lowest. It's 1,200 feet below sea level. Mm. And the only way you can go lower is to literally to dig. And I think there's something to the fact that— and, and for the Israelites, the Jordan, because of the exodus and the crossing into the promised land— it's always been a symbol of new life, new beginnings, a new start. But isn't it interesting that you have to start new life at the point of death? Mm. You have to begin God's glory at the point of giving something up. We go to the depths, literally. And we, what we believe is that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan to actually render all water clean. He goes mm. to the lowest point of the earth to build us all up mm. and to raise us up. But I think it's so significant that that the Jordan is where it is yeah. and that we have to go there, whether physically or, or spiritually in the waters of baptism, but we go there, we go to the depths right. because we participate. Christ has given it as a free gift, right. but we participate in that. And to do that, we have to give something up. We have to go to the depths. We have to meet him there right. so that he can take us in his hands and lift us up. Mm. And then hopefully if we have the eyes to see it like Naaman did, we'll say, wow, wow. There is no God like this God. This is the truth. 
And this is why, like, I, I think of an example of Mother Teresa, who is Saint, Saint Mother Teresa. Thank you. Um, who is is like really in this place, willing to go to the very depths, yeah. and 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 it's and the healings that are brought about from her are not just physical healings, but something actually much more profound. Right. And that's that's where we see like Naaman and. Um, uh, and these leopards, the physical healing is, is awesome, yep. but the spiritual healing of a person is far more profound. Absolutely. So God bless you all. We will be back next week with a brand uh, new episode. Do we have any shout outs? Oh, um, I want to give a shout out. Well, it's more of a public service announcement for Carl from South Carolina. Pres- How do you say Carl's Carl, last name? Carl Prezibleck. Pre- Carl, you got to tell Pre- us how to pronounce your Pre- last name, buddy. Bleck. <laughs> Pres- we, pres- spent, pres- we spent like 15 minutes before the podcast trying to figure out how to pronounce it. Carl from South Carolina, he asked, I, I mentioned a long time ago that we had this book that we were reading. My daughter, Lily, her godfather, gave it to as her gift for Christmas or for Advent. It's this little children's book on Mary. It's called Mary's Little Donkey. He asked, what is this book? Lily just totally ate it up. She loved this little story. Oh. It's not really a children's book. It's, it's, it's like a, a book that you read. It's for, for kids. It's not like a picture book. It's so great, though. Mary's little donkey, and it gives the Christmas story from the perspective of the donkey. It's, it's really cool. It's a fun story. So, Carl, Mary's little donkey, check it out. Get it for your kiddos. Um, that's the only shout-out I had. That's good. So, I knew that you had that one, so I right. wanted to make sure that it happened. Mary's little donkey. We will see you next week. Peace. Have a good one. The Word in the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.